So if we haven't met, my name is Mandy. Uh, I'm on staff here at Reality Boston. So you may have noticed if you were uh, with us before, I'm kind of anticipating based on the evils and what we're going to be teaching on today, that I'm not going to be teaching on Matthew 5, but I am going to be teaching on Matthew chapter 4, which is a passage that I spent a good amount of time in just during my personal devotion and Bible study uh, last year. And so through that, this passage became personally significant to me, and God really used it to minister to me, as uh, so this might be a little bit like reading my diary today, but uh, I felt like if there was a passage that I had to just suddenly talk about for 20 minutes straight, it would be this one, so this is what we're going to do. Um, and conveniently enough, uh, before we get started, Matthew 4 also has really salient themes for the season of Lent, which is coming up, and it overlaps well with this month's spiritual formation guide that we've been putting out monthly, and this month's guide focuses on silence and stillness. So um, with that in mind, after the sermon today, we're actually going to do something a little bit different, and we're going to set aside some time where I will lead you through a guided time of reflection and prayer before we respond to God's word in musical worship, as usual. So that's the agenda for today that kind of came together in the last 48 hours. So we definitely need prayer today, so let me just open us with a word of prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to meet with us. Uh, Lord God, we just thank you for the ways in which you are present to us, Lord. God, you are the one who speaks through your word. You are the word incarnate, Lord Jesus. And so we just have so much faith that you can speak to us when we come to you just desiring to be taught by you. Lord, we thank you for what we see in this passage, Lord, that you are both divine, but you are also human. And we can look to your humanity. We can look to the ways in which you... Um, walk and think about things and pray about things and wrestle with things and, and approach difficult challenges and be inspired with how it is that you're calling us to live. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that fills us and empowers us to live in the way that you call us to. So Lord, we just pray that you teach us today. Be present to us today. God, help us to see more of who you are. Help us to have the confidence to draw near to you with all of our need and all of our weakness and all of our messiness. God, we just pray that through our time together today that we would see you more clearly and that we would have more confidence uh, drawing near to you, Lord God. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Book of Matthew. The Book of Matthew is one of four beautiful tapestries that illustrate the significance of who Jesus is. So each of the Gospels paints its own nuanced picture of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior who comes in fulfillment of centuries of Jewish prophecies, that he came to enable forgiveness for all of humanity's sins, to offer healing for our brokenness, and to bring about the restoration of the world into a place where God's goodness and grace completely reshape our reality. And so Matthew's Gospel, in particular, starts off with mystery and momentum. There's a virgin birth, there are these Persian astrologers traveling from afar to come worship the newborn king of the Jews. There's a young Jesus and his family fleeing from Egypt to escape danger, and then finally returning to Israel when an angel calls them home. So the narrative is dramatic and otherworldly, and it leads you to believe that something extraordinary is happening. And then in chapter 3, we see this beautifully symbolic moment when Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him and God the Father speaks favor and blessing over the Son, Jesus. So at this point, the scene is really set for Jesus to begin to live out his mission, to reveal to the world who this long-awaited Messiah is and what it looks like for the divine to intersect with humanity, for God to enact his plan 
of salvation. But instead of launching into the story of Jesus doing like Messiah-like things, like healing and performing miracles, Matthew 4 begins with these words. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So all this momentum and energy and prophetic fulfillment builds up to 40 days of Jesus alone in the desert with nothing to eat and nothing to do but pray. So narratively, we were maybe expecting like a crescendo, like an impressive launch into ministry. And what we get is over a month of isolation and fasting. This kind of feels like an interruption, like an unexpected detour, like a burst of heavenly light followed by a descent into gray fog. So why is this here? The text says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into a place of temptation or testing, as it could also be translated. So in this verse, Jesus is characterized as passive. He's being led. He's submitting himself to the guiding force of the Holy Spirit, who is active. And remember, the Spirit has just descended upon Jesus after his baptism. So the very first thing that the Spirit does in Jesus' life, the very first thing he does, is to lead him into the desert, into a place of emptiness, of hunger, of weakness, of challenge and stretching. So God the Father has just anointed Jesus for ministry, and the next step, according to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, is to retreat, to fast, and to pray. So when I'm reading Matthew, and I reach this chapter, I know on a theoretical level that the temptation narrative has to be important, because everything in scripture is incredibly intentional, but emotionally, I feel a sense of resistance. Because I don't want the pause. I don't want the retreat into an ascetic existence. And I definitely don't want to come face to face with my greatest temptations to sin and to abandon the path God has called me to walk down. And this is the hard truth that we face in this passage, sometimes following God seeking his will, being obedient to his guidance, leads us to places of apparent emptiness and weakness. It leads us to hard places. It draws us deeper into silence and stillness, where we're left alone with just who we are and who we believe God to be. And yet somehow, the season in the wilderness is an essential part of God's plan in his preparation for a life of action and relationship and God-given purpose, Jesus must first go deeper into human weakness. So have you ever been in a season of life that felt like wilderness, like a desert, where you felt spiritually dry, where you were acutely aware of your need, of what you were lacking, but there didn't seem to be any way to sate your thirst? Maybe you've simply found life to be exhausting, but there didn't seem to be any relief, like walking a mile after mile through the wilderness and the scenery never seems to change and the journey never seems to end. Have you been through a time that felt very much like testing? Of your strength, of your character, of your faith? Jesus has too. Of all the things that God could have prioritized in launching the Messiah's mission to humanity, he chose to experience the extremes of human hunger, emptiness, and weakness. Forty days, forty days of solitude, silence, fasting, and again, this seems like a disruption on the way to ministry, like a huge buildup that only led to a letdown, but in reality, this empty desert place held everything Jesus needed to take the next step 
of living out his calling. Because in this space, Jesus was not alone. The Spirit was there. In a space where humanity encounters the Holy Spirit is a sanctuary. It's holy ground. It may be a place of emptying, pouring out your desires, unburdening your fears, wrestling with your weaknesses, but it's also a place of being filled. So we may not expect to be tempted and tested when we're in the sanctuary, but sometimes that's what growth looks like. That's what healing looks like. That's what transformation looks like. The wilderness is a place to be drawn deeper into the heart of God. And so I was thinking about this, and I have this image in my mind of a seed being planted. So you plant the seed, and weeks go by, and it's still not sprouting, and there's no leaves, and there's no greenery, there's no anything. So it would be tempting to think that nothing's happening. But below the surface, its roots are growing and pushing through the soil and extending their reach and becoming more deeply anchored. And when that deep work is complete, then the seed is ready to sprout, to grow in ways that the world can see, to bear fruit that can be a blessing to others. And I think that's what we see happening in Jesus' retreat into the wilderness, because at the end, we see the fruit. Jesus triumphs over temptation. After 40 days of hunger pains and immersion in prayer, Jesus emerges with this resiliency, a confidence in the kind of mission he's been given, an astounding purity of character. And what we see through his response to these temptations, the depth of Jesus' surrender, the depth of his humility, the depth of his trust in the Father, these things are revealed through that time in the wilderness, from that testing. And this is true, I think, for humanity at large. Going to that place where we are aware of our need for God to sustain us, where we are aware of our dependence on him, is the path to deeper faith. After 40 days of fasting, we would assume that Jesus is at his weakest, right? I mean, probably that's true physically, but what if spiritually Jesus is at his strongest? Because each day that he could have turned stones into bread and relieved his hunger, but he didn't. Each day that he could have looked for a shortcut to launching his ministry that involved less waiting and struggling, like the big performative jump off the roof of the, the roof of the, uh, uh, why am I blanking on the word, the sanctuary, and, or like submitting to Satan to get glory over all the cities of the earth. Instead of taking those shortcuts, each day that he committed to surrendering to the will of the Father was a victory, not just the final day where we see him overcoming those final three temptations. Every day that we press in and seek God, even when we feel dry, even if temptation threatens to become overwhelming, even if we're longing for relief or for a shortcut to get to the end of this difficult season, every day our roots grow deeper, and we are one step closer to seeing the growth and tasting the fruit. Because growing in faith requires us to experience God, especially in the hard places. We cannot merely memorize truths or recite good theology. If our understanding of God is only abstract, we cannot grow roots. Psalm 34 invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to, God to meet us in our places of spiritual hunger, the moments where we struggle, where we discover that we don't seem to have what it takes to move forward. The places of weakness and emptiness are where we develop an appetite for the things of God. So if you look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, we're going to be spending a couple of months just exploring these in our next sermon series. But in the Beatitudes, we see that those who are grieving and longing for comfort receive it. 
Those who long to see righteousness and justice in this corrupted world are filled. Those who lean into the way of meekness and mercy and purity, despite living in cultures that promote the opposite, find themselves drawn nearer to God. Those who know they are empty, who are poor in spirit, receive the fullness and the richness of the kingdom of God. Those who come to God full of need are in the perfect position to discover that he is a provider. He is generous and gracious. He is sufficient. When we read about the temptations of Jesus, we likely know in theory that we should seek strength in God's word, as Jesus does, that we should walk the path of humility, that we need to wait on God to lead us and reveal his purposes and his timing. But it's often not until we're really tested that we believe these things are true in a way that transforms us. So in theory, we may know, scripture has the ability to sustain and revive us, but until we experience it, until we see God shift our perspective or renew our hope with a perfectly timed Bible passage or a discerning word from a friend or a sermon, we don't yet fully know that the word of God is life. And in theory, we may know that taking shortcuts or making excuses at the ends justify the means, that that only leads to trouble. But until we actually wait on God, until we've practiced surrendering our will to his wisdom again and again, we can't yet taste the pure sweetness of discovering that God is faithful to us, that there is joy in serving him, and that he can bring about more good through our surrender than we could ever achieve trying to do things our own way. Entering into a place of weakness, like Jesus did in the desert, feels vulnerable. Hunger hurts. And it makes sense that we'd rather just run away. But how will we know that God can sustain us unless we let ourselves grow hungry? Unless we stop filling ourselves with spiritual junk food, things that distract us from loneliness and emptiness and boredom and pain, but they really do nothing to truly resolve the deep ache inside of us. Until we create space that only God can occupy, we'll continue to underestimate how sustaining and satisfying his presence can be. So many of you have heard me tell the story of how I got to Boston. Back in 2013, I moved here from Los Angeles to join this church plant when it was just a year old, and I wasn't exactly sure what to expect, but I was banking on God doing big, exciting things in my life. I had hoped that surrendering to his calling would lead to growth and fruitfulness, but my first year here was honestly more like a desert season. It was lonely. I was undergoing a really hard, deep healing process from painful things in my family life. I experienced a lot of inertia in trying to find a job, trying to discern a vocational direction, to develop a new community and friendships. And I often felt frustrated. Like each movement forward ended up feeling like a false start. And on top of that, I went through a several month period where my job and my relationships at the time led me to ask really hard questions about my faith and tempted me to compromise on what I believed, even just for the sake of making life a little bit easier. So I didn't exactly want to walk away from God or church or the faith, but I just felt tired. Like I might have to give up by default because pressing on just didn't feel possible. So after a long stretch of struggling through the day to day, God brought this passage into my life, into my attention, from John chapter 6. So in John chapter 6, at this point in that narrative, Jesus has a lot of followers. He's become very popular. But then he begins to teach things that are difficult for people to receive, that challenge people on what faith truly looks like. 
So some of them walk away because what Jesus is calling them to just feels too hard. So there's this moment where Jesus turns to his 12 disciples, his closest friends, and he asks them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That question struck a chord with me, Lord, to whom shall we go? The testing and the temptation in my life had almost become overwhelming to me, but when it came to that question, I knew I wouldn't walk away because yes, following God is hard. And sometimes it feels like the challenges are unrelenting, but I look around at the world and my options for living without God, and I remember what that was like. The first 20 years of my life before I knew Jesus, how I felt like an unanchored boat just tossed about in a stormy sea, just lost and directionless and, and hoping against hope that by some chance I wouldn't capsize. The way toward God is hard, but there is life on that path. There is the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There is reassurance in being anchored in what is true. There is hope in a God who remains strong and steadfast when we are at our weakest. So Jesus, Jesus has the words of eternal life. And I believe that because I've experienced it. Somehow, by his strength and grace, I kept going through that hard season, and eventually the fog lifted. I began to slowly build a deeper community. To my surprise, I was asked to be a community group leader in a season where my faith definitely still felt shaky. But I felt called to press in, and I learned what it's like to lead from a place of weakness. It's incredibly hard. But it's better. It's better to be human, to be frail, to be completely reliant on God to make it possible for you to even show up to minister to others, to keep walking in the faith. It's hard, but it's better. Because in our weakness, we can actually experience that God's strength is somehow enough. In our emptiness and our hunger, we discover that he can fill us. So even though this passage from Matthew 4 was a last-minute pick, it feels surprisingly timely because Lent is just around the corner. Lent begins with Ash Wednesday, which is on February 22nd, it's coming up, and it continues until Easter. And this season in the church calendar is set aside for us to identify with Jesus' 40 days of fasting, praying, and enduring temptation. For many of us who've observed Lent, it may honestly feel like we're taking doses of bitter medicine or eating a vegetable that you dislike but you know it's good for you so you eat it anyway. In theory, we know that silence, stillness, fasting, dedicated time for solitary prayer can strengthen our relationship with God, but in reality, those wilderness spaces are intimidating. They challenge parts of us we may not feel ready to have challenged. Even simply being alone with our thoughts might make us aware of things we've been working hard to ignore. If I'm honest, I want to avoid, I, I want to avoid fasting. I don't like going to that place of weakness. I'm worried it'll bring out the worst in me. I'm not sure what to do with the hunger pains. How am I supposed to just walk around like a normal person while I'm fighting a craving that I can't fill? And I can say something similar about silence and solitude. The idea of withdrawing to a quiet place to hear from God sounds nice, but the reality can bring up unexpected anxieties. What if I try to seek God and I only find emptiness? What if I listen for him and I don't hear anything but the echo of my own thoughts? What if a time of solitude tears down the fragile walls I've built to hide things in my life that make me feel lonely? Practices like these, 
A literal or a metaphorical retreat into the wilderness make me so aware of my weakness, how easily I can go astray, how fickle I can be. It seems easier to just not face these things about myself, to try to keep them hidden. But the Holy Spirit calls us out into the open. The Spirit invites us to go deeper, into that place of hunger and vacancy. When we clear a space for God, he begins to work in new ways, stretching us in ways that may feel uncomfortable, shifting things in ways that may be invisible at first, but ultimately we discover that our roots have grown deeper. And when difficult seasons come up in the future, we can recall those times when God met us in our emptiness. And just like Jesus in the wilderness, we find our faith has become much stronger and much more difficult to shake. So as we reflect on the story of Jesus' retreat into the wilderness, and as we engage with Lenten practices like silence, stillness, fasting, and prayer, remember that these are not empty spaces. The Spirit has something for you. Whether it feels like a spiritual battle, or it feels like the warmth of an intimate relationship, or it feels like an empty cathedral, where every sound echoes and you're not sure if you hear anything but your own voice, no matter what that time of stillness and retreat feels like, trust God to take you deeper. Believe that when you let yourself be led into desert places, God can meet you there. Let's press in together and pray that during this season we will experience what we see in Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, that we would develop a resilient faith, a confidence in the kind of mission God calls us to, and a purity of character that would shine light into dark a dark and hungry world, and draw others near to God. So before we begin our time of reflection and prayer, I'd like to end with three kind of exhortations based on our passage today. And I would invite you to just notice which one of these might stand out to you now. These are kind of my prayers for us as a church, so I'll read them. Let the Spirit lead you to a place of deeper hunger, so that you can taste and see that God himself is our greatest good. Let the Spirit lead you to a place of silence and emptiness, so that you can hear more clearly the words of life God wants to speak to you. Let the Spirit lead you to a place where you are aware of your weakness, so that you will learn what it looks like to walk in complete reliance on God's strength.